Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay. Uh, via Zoom, Sue Grimmett is coming in from her office. Is that right, Sue? Yeah, in in my office amongst everything, yes, here I am. And uh, it looks like Peter might be on an Italian lakeside today. I, I imagine, Peter, is this still the grieving process of the holiday that never happened or has this moved it, on? It still is. I, today, I'm in the, today I'm in the north of Spain just for a bit of relief. Yes. <laughs> well, Zoom backgrounds can do wonderful things, yeah. as it seems. <laughs> Um, we are so excited about today's guest on the podcast. He is someone whose work has been um, foundational for, for us in many ways in this podcast and for many others out there. Um, he is a progressive American faith leader, speaker, and author of many great books, most recently, Faith After Doubt, a book that has the power to be, uh, I think, such a helpful bridge between something that seemed to work, at least for a while, and something that can work going forward. Um, fair to say this man is one of the foundational writers and thinkers for many who have searched for a new way forward, free of much of the baggage that they might have been given along the journey. So with all that said, Brian McLaren, thank you for joining me on the Way podcast. So glad to be with you guys uh, on the other side of the world. So where are you zooming in from? Where, where are we talking to you today? I, I live in Southwest Florida, right near the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so it's, be- it's uh, beautiful, warm weather here. Yeah, similar climate probably to where we are in Brisbane. I, I think so. Yes. In some ways. Um, well, look, we're, we're so excited to talk through this book. I'll say, um, off the beginning, I mentioned just before we started recording, actually, that I was a bit surprised by the time I got to the end of the book, because I think my early expectations when I saw that you were publishing a book called Faith After Doubt was that it would be only about religious faith and religious doubt, that it would just be about the way in which doubt is part of the tradition but you go four or 500 steps further than that, basically unpacking how doubt is the thing that the world needs. We'll get into that um, as we go ahead. I just want to ask to start with, though, did writing this book feel in some way like the culmination of decades of, of work for you? Um, yeah, it really did, Dom. Um, and this book is actually sort of, a, it's part of a pair. Um, so this book, you know, just came out. And then next spring, I have a book coming out called Do I Stay Christian? And putting these two together, it really does feel feel like a culmination. Um, uh, The and I I, now that I'm working on the second book, I'm, I'm thinking I thought one would be first and one would be second, but it really doesn't matter. In some ways, faith after doubt could go first or second in this in this pair. Yeah, well, I, if this is the, the first half, I can't wait to see the second half and, and where you go with it. Um, in this conversation, Brian, we, we'd love to talk a bit through the four-stage model of faith development yes. that you do outline in the book. Um, I think it, it's very helpful, not just in people's individual faith journey, but also seeing um, where people around you, why they might be thinking and feeling what they are thinking and feeling. Um the, the, the four stages are simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. We will go through them in some detail, but um, could you just speak a little bit first, maybe about the, the model itself and yeah. how, how you came to it? Sure. Well, first, I always like to say a lot of people are suspicious of stage theory uh, and stage models, and with good reason. They can be abused in terrible ways. They can create hierarchies. I heard someone say once, beware of anyone who has a stage model and puts himself at the top stage. So, um, you know, there's all kinds of reasons to be suspicious about this. Um, uh, 
But my exposure originally came not in the world of religion, but I was a college English teacher and in, uh, in higher education, there was a theorist named William Perry, whose specialty was adolescent intellectual development. And um, he developed a nine stage theory that I was exposed to decades ago. And when I heard this uh, in my university setting, uh, I, I just thought this helps me understand my own faith. So from there, I became interested in stage theories in general. And many people with a theological background would know Fowler and Lawrence Kohlberg and a number of others. There have been a, a number who focused on religious uh, uh, development. But I have found just the larger field of human development to be, to be even more useful. Uh, and that was the approach William Perry took for this reason. Um, it, it appears that naturally life brings us to, uh, to breakthroughs and, and that naturally we would continue growing in wisdom uh, through our whole lives. Um, and it often takes something to interrupt that growth, to stunt that growth. And that's where religion often comes in. And so depending on what religious person is teaching you, they're going to have a very low ceiling. They might have one stage that you're allowed to be in. Uh, and, and so for me, it's very helpful just to learn all that I can uh, from psychologists and human developmentalists and even neuro neurologists and, and uh, brain science people about, uh, about how we humans develop. Yeah, and I think when you read through the, the four stages, which you do go into to great depth on in the book um, for, for people who, you know, obviously will want to take this further, as I'm, I'm sure many will after this conversation. When you do go through them, there's a whole bunch of, of oh, of course, moments that, that certainly I, that I think um, everyone will have. Uh, just looking at, at your own journey even of going, that's what was happening there. I can yes. so clearly actually label now that I wasn't a problem in the system. I wasn't an aberration. That's mm -hmm. actually yes. the, the path. Is that something that you find people say to you um, is one of the things that, that they're so grateful for with this theory? Yes. You know, so often in religious settings, people are made to feel odd or guilty, or people aren't even allowed to talk about their questions or doubts or frustrations because that's seen as being sinful or backsliding or something like this. And, and uh, so when people find it's safe to talk about these things and, and they aren't made to be ashamed, I think a, a lot of people feel a lot of relief. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of resonance. Yes. And, you know, uh, one thing that helps me uh, frame this, I, I have a, a relative who's a math educator. So her, her doctorate is not just in math, it's in uh, math education. And, uh, and, you know, when you think about mathematics, we all know you can't learn calculus before you learn addition. And you think skills build upon each other. And you might, and I, I know a lot of people don't think this way because they think of faith as a list of beliefs. But if you think of faith as this, uh, one of the ways that we cope with the mysteries of life, um, uh, then you think, of course, there's a set of skills. And, and if we grow, we'll be given a chance to build on our core skills and uh, and at, keep adding, you know, as, as life brings us more experience. And with that said, we, we will just um, go into the stages themselves now, because I, I think that there'll be a lot of people who listen to this, who'll feel the resonance that I felt to. Maybe we'll oh, have yeah. a, a sense of an, oh, thank gosh, someone's actually said that now yes. um, experience. We'll, we'll just start with what you introduce as stage one, simplicity. 
Uh, how, how, when you're speaking about this, and I know you've given a, a bunch of presentations, lectures about this, how do you introduce stage one? Well, stage one in a way is the easiest because we've all been there. Uh, we, uh, in, in some ways, being raised means being raised into stage one. Uh, we could say there's a stage zero. That's where we are when we're born, uh, where we don't care about anyone or anything except getting our milk and getting our, you know, getting changed and all the rest. Um, but when we become children our, and our parents start to teach us and in some ways civilize us and raise us, they're really bringing us into stage one. And stage one is the stage of dualism. Um, in fact, if there are two concepts you need to understand stage one, it's uh, authority figures and dualism. Um, dualism is sorting the world into two categories, us, them, in, out, right, wrong, safe, dangerous, friend, enemy, uh, all those kinds of dualisms. And, and they're, they're necessary for our survival. The child needs to know, yes, you can eat this, but no, don't pick that up off the floor and eat that. Uh, and uh, so, and the people who teach these life-saving dualisms to us are our authority figures. And and that is really, really essential work. Uh, the, the problem in religion comes when, in some ways, a lot of religions like to stay at stage one. They play such a vital role in, in some ways, backing up parents in teaching their children right and wrong. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of religious communities stop there. And then they make it sound like to grow beyond stage one is to become a less faithful person. Mm. Um, but very often... Uh, uh, I think in a lot of history and uh, in a lot of places in the world, people could stay in stage one for their whole lives. Nothing would push them beyond it, perhaps. Um, and maybe they just would have enough trust in those authority figures to kind of stay there and be comfortable there. Yeah, I think we could all probably think of uh, places we've been where that sort of stage one energy is um, running the show in a sense that, yes. you know, it's uh, sometimes quite jarring to walk into a place and realize the way you're expected to relate to authority here. And, um, you know, that there's different ground rules that are being played here than might be being played elsewhere in your life. So, so true. So true. And, and in fact, it's as hard for, for people in stage one, it's very hard to imagine anybody in any other stage mm. except to see them as bad. You know, they're yeah. misbehaving. They're not following the rules. They're not listening to the authority figures. And so it's very hard for them to understand how anybody could be a good person who's not working in that framework. But in the same way for people who've gone into other stages, it's very hard for them to understand how anyone could stay in stage one. So this creates a lot of communication gaps yeah. with us. Yeah. Um, so, so that moves us into stage two. And this is where it's, a, I think, a really important point to, to draw up before we get to stage two. This, I think, is um, was my biggest oh moment of the book was when you speak about how doubt is not just an okay thing or an, a companion along the journey, but doubt is actually the fuel that gets us from one stage to the next. You use a yes. quote saying, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps the whole thing moving. There, you, there <laughs> yes. is no movement from one stage to another ever without doubt. Yes. And, and in fact, it's often that kind, a kind of traumatic experience that shoves someone out of stage one into stage two. So um, I, I remember I was in high school and uh, it was the first time I had a friend come out to me as gay. And it was one of my closest friends and a wonderful human being. And I remember when he came out to me feeling just this, you know, super big tension in my brain because 
my church told me to judge him in one way. All of my experience of him was another. And on top of that, the fact that he was trusting me with this information, um, knowing that that was our shared religious background. I just, it, it was this, now as I look back on it, it was this disruptive moment that was a beautiful moment. Um, but at that point I had to make a decision. Do I just write him off and stay with what my authority figures have told me? Or do I give myself permission to say, I think life is more complicated than what they've told me. The same thing happened for me with the theory of evolution. I grew up in a very religious, uh, rigid religious uh, background where you were not allowed to believe in evolution. And uh, I just remember thinking evolution makes so much sense. And I, I, even as a boy, I could read Genesis one and say, this is not a science textbook. This is poetry. Um, but my church, you know, the authority figures said no. So that's when you begin to say those authority, when, here's a way to say it. When you begin to doubt those authority figures are always right. Mm. Uh, that paves the way for you to go into stage two. I suppose one of the, the funny inbuilt complexities of that is in stage one, you have clear rights and wrongs. And one of those clear wrongs is doubt. And so actually yes. you're told that the, the thing that you need to move to the next stage is something you're not allowed to do. And in stage one, you, you are sort of oriented by what you are and aren't allowed to do. So that makes it more difficult, Which, doesn't it? it? It really does. And I remember being a, a teenager and that was sort of my entry into stage two. And uh, there was a fellow at, uh, I met uh, through my church who was involved in some other organization uh, where he was learning things that we didn't learn in my church. And I remember I went to him, he was about five years older than me. I went to him with a question uh, and I don't even remember what the question was. And his answer to me was, you know, Brian, there are about five different ways that Christians look at that question. And there are five different answers and each of them have strengths and weaknesses. Well, I mean, to, to us, you know, that sounds like an easy thing to say. To me, it was just, you know, it blew my mind because I thought, you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to look and say there are multiple answers and not have to say one is right and the others are all wrong. And that was another, that became a bridge. Here is somebody older than me who I respected who was modeling stage two complexity. Yeah. I'm wondering, Sue, I'd like to bring you in now because I know you also have spent your whole life in the church. Do you have a memory of that stage one to stage two maybe transition? Yeah. Do you have a vivid memory of when that might've occurred for you? Yeah, it, it was those those disruptive moments like Brian's pointing to. I think one of the other things, it's not only doubt you're not allowed to do, but you're also not supposed to question or you're supposed to respect the elders and respect their opinion. And you, know, you just can't be too careful in your reading when you're uh, trying to remain a fundamentalist. There is pitfalls <laughs> everywhere. Um, Brian's books were some of those for me. Uh, they're just, you start to, the, it was always for me, those questions of love over authority. Yes. You know, you have a choice to love someone or to follow through on what authority figures are telling you you should be saying or doing. And I mean, the, the evolution was a bit of a one for me too, because I had a short, <laughs> short, but um, fiery time as a six day creationist and <laughs> until I couldn't, I couldn't sustain it. So, you know, that was that was one thing when you go, well, I clearly I have to jettison that. And so things start to go down like the pack of cards after that. But the biggest single ones were, were actually listening to young people, hearing uh, 
how their religion was hurting them. Yes. And trying to bring that into line with um, the faith that was based around love and freedom and it just wouldn't work. So it was a whole lot of it was you know, the biggest ones were the relational ones for me. Yeah. And Peter, I know that you didn't grow up in the church. Um, you sort of didn't grow up uh, religious at all. So when you hear these, do you see resonances in, in your upbringing and how you were taught to believe as well? Or, or do you do you feel like you maybe were saved some of the difficulty of that transition? Um, I was. I think I was saved the religious version of it. But uh, I think one of the things to be mindful in many of these conversations is that often the church is just mirroring stuff that's in the broader culture. Mm-hmm. So that you know, Western, Western culture, you know, as, as Derrida points out, Western culture is pretty well framed around uh, dualistic opposites. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we, and, you know, we are in the middle of a climate catastrophe and an eco-catastrophe because we have lived the lie of nature versus human. You know, we've actually had a, uh, each of those dualistic opposites has a hierarchy and somehow we've been taught to value that people are more important than the planet which sustains us, which is just bizarre um so i was you know i was framed in the same way of thinking but by culture not by religion and and for me the pitfall was that i thought religion was the source of that sort of thinking because i you know i was strongly into evolution and i could point to the people like Sue at the time, which I find absolutely fascinating. The idea of Sue being a six-day creation. I, I, I would love to see that played out. But, uh, um, you know, I, I, for me, that was an easy way of scapegoating the religious people, which in itself is a dualistic. I mean, yes. so, so for me, I've had to go through the same um, process. And because I was trained in science, I, for a, well, before I was trained in science, but when I was a, someone aspiring to be a scientist, I was really into scientism, which is the same sort of thing. Of, you know, science knows everything. If you can't cut it up, it doesn't exist. If you can't measure it, it's not real. Um, uh, that sort of fundamentalist view that science knows everything and science is absolute. It was yes. only really when I studied science that I realised we were always dealing with doubt, error, and in the end, um, you know, doubt is only an expression of that wonderful gift of curiosity, mm. um, where we, which is the thing, one of the things I learned from my scientific training that in the end set me up to be able to explore spirituality and then religion, which was you know, one of the quirky sort of outcomes of all of that. But, but I think we, we need to remind ourselves that the culture does actually condition yes. religious response as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose that's, um, that's sort of three stories of where you, you do see that move from stage one to stage two. You start realizing that the framework you were given maybe isn't big enough to hold the universe that you find yourself in. So that's where you might move yes. into stage two, Brian, which you yes. um, describe as complexity. Can you speak a bit about stage yeah. two? Yeah. So if stage one is the stage of dualism, you could say stage two is the stage of pragmatism. And it's where we, we, we realize, oh, I was brought up in one game, but my friends down the street, their family is playing another game and they have another set of rules. And when I go to secondary school, 
in English class, they have one set of rules. And in science class, I have another set of rules. And in economics class, another set. And you realize, wow, there are a lot of different games going on here. How do I master all of these rules and play the appropriate game, play by the appropriate rules in the appropriate setting? And uh, in a way, it makes perfect sense that this would be the natural stage for a lot of adolescents. Because even as a child, you know, a child goes through puberty and now has to negotiate a new set of skills. And the rules of childhood now are there to be broken. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so the complexities of adolescence very often bring people into stage two, although some religious contexts won't even let them do that. At least they, they have to pretend that they're not doing that. Um, and I think uh, in the United States, a lot of people stay in stage two for the rest of their lives because in a way, our economic system is the perfect stage two system. It, we don't ask what is of value. We just say, how do I make more money? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't say, what does it mean to be a good person? We say, how do I be successful? And, and the how-to set of questions are the questions that in stage two, that's what you're trying to figure out. In a way, it matches. I was a child dependent on the authority figures. Now I've got to learn how to think for myself, make decisions for myself, and become a success, become independent. Uh, So that would be stage two. And it really is about independence. You know, um, in a Christian context, I mentioned this fellow who, when I asked him a question, he said, well, there are four or five answers to that. He brought me to a Bible study, which was very different than a sermon. In a sermon, the authority figure tells you what you're supposed to listen to, what you're supposed to think. Uh, not all sermons do that, but a lot do. He brought me to this Bible study where we take a verse or a passage of the Bible and we'd all give our opinions on it and we'd have arguments about it, good natured ones. But um, And then I realized, oh, you can learn how to understand this yourself. Man, for a stage two person, that was just a feast. That was so exciting. Well, you do write in the book um, that your undoing from stage one to stage two, uh, you often joke was sex, facts, and rock and roll, (laughs) (laughs) which I quite like. Can you just talk about that for a minute, what that was for you? Sure. Well, you know, in a stage one setting, sex is bad, right? Uh, Because we just want to have dualism about everything. And so um, sex is bad uh, and spirit is good and body is a little dangerous. And of course, you become a teenager and you awaken sexually and you just think, if this is bad, I'm, in, I'm going straight to hell <laughs> because this is what every part of me is geared toward, right? So, um, so sex was a big factor. Uh, life didn't fit those just thou shalt not, you know, kind of uh, uh, rules that I've been given. And, you know, uh, wiser stage one people might have been able to say, well, and they did. They said, here's the one way that sex is okay. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're 12 years old and you aren't going to get married till you're 22 or 24, that's a long time, you know, to, to uh, struggle with, with uh, 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 in a sense, a theology and a morality that doesn't seem to fit your, your actual experience. Um, and then facts, obviously, th- things like facts from science, as, as, um, as Pete was saying, uh, Peter was saying, uh, and I remember, you know, someone told me that um, 
that in the book of Genesis, there were, you know, there was something called the documentary hypothesis and that, that the Bible wasn't as simple a text as I, I, I'd been led to believe. And, oh, now I've got to learn that, that, that there's controversies about whether the apostle Paul actually wrote Ephesians and the curiosity part of me wants to learn about all that, but that complexifies the simple world of stage one. And then um, rock and roll, I, I played, I was a musician and I played in a band and, you know, art is all about freedom and liberation and exploring your experience and being authentic and true and honest. And that just doesn't fit in that world of, is this right or is this wrong? Mm. So yeah, those, all of those things pushed me into stage two. You know, I think in many ways, I, I think it would be very similar um, in in uh, your context, but here in the U.S., I think the megachurch phenomenon is a classic example of stage two kind of religion. The the sermons aren't who's going to hell, who's going to heaven, although that's still in the background for a lot of them. The sermons are five ways to have a good marriage, you know, the four steps to inner peace or whatever. And and now it's all about here's how you can do it. You know, there's a famous uh, prosperity gospel preacher in the U.S. Who, whose most famous book was Your Best Life Now. And you better believe the book was the steps to have your best life now. And just as stage one gave you easy answers, stage two, in a sense, gives you easy steps. They, they might be complex, but they're things you can do. It, another way to say it is that in stage one, everything is knowable. And in stage two, everything is doable. And and I, you use a really great um, explanation in the book of how this has kept, uh, I guess the the capitalist side, the money side of um, Western religion going. Because in that model, in the stage two model, people always need the next book. You know, they always need the next yeah. um, podcast series. There, there is always the need for the the new thing that is going to unlock us and save us from the difficulties of life. When you're in this stage of complexity, you have this belief, if I could just get a little more information, life would be good. Yeah. 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 And what I, what I love, I thought this was a brilliant um, insight you give in the book that when people reach the end of stage two, you start to move through it um, with doubt again, that is often where people think they've reached the end of religion. They think yes. they've done religion. All right. Well, now I can see the whole thing was a bit of a sham. There wasn't really anything in there for me. I have now finished religion. That was all religion yes. has to offer. Whereas, you know, the, the tradition obviously tells us that the, the deepest riches of religion lie further ahead. Why do you think it's so hard at that point to see that there's more um, if, you, if you just keep journeying? Well, uh, if almost all of the preachers you've ever heard were stage one or stage two preachers, in fact, I would say for the vast majority of Christians, the only preachers they've ever heard were stage one or stage two. Mm. You know, something ironic happens. I mentioned this in the book. Uh, a, lot of, uh, a, a lot of the clergy I know become clergy because they have a wonderful youth group. Um, and the, the youth minister in some ways introduces them to stage two. And so they have this wonderful youth group experience. And they say, I want to do this for my career. And they go to seminary. And very often in seminary, they learn stage three, which we'll get to in a minute. But the problem is they finish seminary and they've been introduced to critical thinking and, uh, and, and then they go back to, to they, they become a pastor or a priest, they go to a church and 
the people don't want to hear that. They just want to be massaged with a stage one familiarities or, or they want to be given sort of the upbeat uh, stage two message. And so even many ministers who've been, who've moved into stage three or stage four, they face this problem mm. that the people that are paying their salary just don't want to hear it. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure there'll be a bunch of people listening to that particular part who might let out a deep sigh of, of knowing um, when you say yeah. that. So, so that brings us into stage three, then perplexity. Um, this is the stage where maybe everyone in this Zoom chat, maybe not you, Peter, with, without having the same background, but has been accused of backsliding when you move into stage yes. three. Um, can you just talk a little yeah. bit about what stage three is and, and what it looks like? So I call stage three perplexity. Um, and it's, it's really a stage of critical thinking. Um, and in some ways, what happens in stage three is we go from being dependent on authority figures in stage one to trying to be independent in stage two to being what I would call counter-dependent in stage three. Because what happens in stage three is we realize that many of those things we were told in stage one actually hurt people. Mm. And many of those easy steps to success that were given in stage two actually hurt people. And now we feel a need, we feel an ethical responsibility to expose what's harmful in those very, very common settings. I mean, really, Sue, when you mentioned before, you started realizing that religion was hurting people. Um, and, and this is so much the passion of stage three. Let's acknowledge where injustice is happening. Let's acknowledge where harm is happening. And, and very often something happens in life that precipitates this. A person's part of a big mega church, and then they find out that the pastor has been kind of a sexual predator and has this whole secret life. And then they think, gosh, if his five easy steps to a good marriage weren't working for him, <laughs> um, maybe this whole thing is just a sham. And that, that becomes this crisis now where it's not only you have permission, it's not that you just have permission to ask questions. You are furious. You are brokenhearted. You are disillusioned. And you have this, it, it's, it's something you can't stop doing. You've got to now grab this and, and, and shake it out and try to figure out what's authentic and what's not authentic. Yeah. And, and I know certainly um, people in that stage, there's a lot of grief as well, because there's still a desire to have a, you know, a, a, for all its um, problems, stage one and two does give you a strong sense of belonging and community. Yes. And um, you write about that at the start of the book, the, the deep part of us that needs belonging and to go into stage yes. three can feel like that conflict between the head and the heart almost that you, you need yes. to do this, but you're so sad to lose what you're losing. We've said before how it's the most passionate people, the people who are most passionate and earnest about their faith. And they are trying, really striving for integrity, for yes. honesty. Yes. And so I, I'm constantly confronted by this, that it's our, that's people who are, who are the most engaged are the ones that um, we end up losing out of the church and that, that um, it depends on you know, how they negotiate this perplexity. Yes. And, and um, Dom, as you were asking before, one of the reasons I think so many people leave the church is first, they, they not only have never seen any models of people having questions and talking about their, their struggles and, and their doubts and so on, um, it's that they hear it just be preached against. 
and and they they uh, they're afraid. They're literally afraid. If I'm honest, I'm going to be insulted. I'm going to be preached at. I'm going to be kicked out. And um, so it creates this sense that for many they keep it a secret. Um, for and some keep it a secret for decades. Uh, and they carry on this double life um, where they just have to pretend. And, and, and you know, I, I, a sentence that I, I don't think I actually put in the book that I wish I would have, would have been something like, I, maybe I got close to it, but, but doubts aren't bad for your faith. Pretending you don't have doubts, that is really bad for your faith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I also love, um, there's a beautiful um, part of the book where you're, you're writing about a walk that you have um, where you, you had that realization that there's a difference between doubting God and doubting your yes. um, perspective on God. I was listening just before we recorded today to another podcast you'd done where you said that that realization, um, you said you it made you realize that it might help you in your relationship with God, but it wasn't going to help you in your relationship with Christians. <laughs> and I think yes. I think that almost sums up um, maybe maybe to some extent what stage three is, is you keep learning things that you feel like might be helping you in your relationship with God, but are not helping you in your relationship with Christians. And that's a, that's a really tricky tension to navigate. And, and, you know, this to what's so sad to me about this, Dom, and I'm going to guess that, you know, the three of you represent the solution to this, but, and, and this podcast in many ways does, but I, I mean, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, it, it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, if, if, you know, eight-year-old children were told, listen, as you get older, you're going to have a lot of questions and you're allowed to ask them. And any, if you're seeking for truth and if you're seeking for wisdom, that's what makes a good Christian. If you want to be honest, that's what makes a good Christian. If we could do that, that wouldn't be hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. and it, would be, it would be very different. There would still be difficulties in stage three, but it would, it, it would be... Uh, you know, because in many ways, stage three is a joyful experience if it weren't for these, uh, you know, authority figures hovering over our shoulder, shaking their fingers at us. Because as Peter said before, curiosity is one of the delights of life. It's part of how we're made. And it's so sad that it gets ground out of us by the time we reach adulthood. But to be an adult and to be curious is, oh, what what a great gift that is. This is where there's actually a challenge to a lot of people who are in leadership because um, it seems to me that there's a bit of a game of the emperor's new clothes going on where people who have been, often people who've been trained in the complexity of scripture, say, um, lapse into being crypto-fundamentalists when they're in the pulpit, um, partly because, as you say, many congregations demanded of them, um, but often it's also because... The, the priest or the minister is is unsure about what would happen if they try it. Yes. And so they they pander to what they think the people want. Yes. Um, whereas a lot of people, once they're game enough to give it a try, will discover that in their community there are lots of people who share the same experience. And so at that point, the leader or uh, becomes the little child in the emperor's new clothes who says the emperor's got yes. no clothes on and everyone yes. else goes oh you too you yes. you also can see that the emperor yes. is naked and um yes. and there's a huge liberation that happens there um there's a we use um in some parts of our churches 
we use a thing called education for ministry, which is yes. a, an amazing tool. And the number of people who I've met over the years who were introduced to education for ministry and their first reaction was to be furious with their parish priest, who they suddenly realised had all of this information from when they yes. were at college and had not shared one yes. skerrick of it yes. at all. And they, they said, well, you know, why have you, why have you kept this back from me? And yes. often the priest will say, oh, it hadn't occurred to me to share it or <laughs> I didn't know how to share it or I didn't think you'd want it. Yes. Um, so there's a challenge for us all to, you know, and you know, some of the, you know, often the best sermons are the ones where the preacher uh, opens the, yes. uh, the box and says, let's have a look into this. I'll share you my doubts and let's see where we go from there. Beautifully said. We're in a tradition that, you know, honours the saints. And I was thinking uh, the other day was Polycarp with martyrdom and, and thinking we honour all these saints and martyrs. And yet today we're, we're and we're not at risk of death. No one's going to torture us. or But yet we're too afraid still somehow yes. to stand up for telling the truth. We're too afraid to even say, hey, doubt's a part of it. I don't, I still can't work out quite why the level of fear is at it where it is because when we do speak the truth nothing happens you know actually what we, yes. what we see happen is a whole lot of people set free yeah yeah and it's interesting so this i, I guess this stage three this enable enabling is sometimes a bad word but this support this growth of doubt to help you move from stage two into stage three that empowerment to take that step is such a life-giving helpful step and i guess it occurred to me brian reading the book how often I see that step taken um, by friends who aren't at all religious, where they will get to a stage where they start doubting capitalism or they will, yes. you know, they will start getting quite, um, maybe they start critiquing the government and they start saying, actually, a lot of these inbuilt systems that firstly I was taught and then I was taught how to use and how to game them. Now I'm wondering whether these systems are actually inherently corrupt. Um, so it is that this move into stage three of perplexity is something that is so easy, I think, to notice um, even outside of the church as people, uh, many young people sometimes have this this moment of thinking, actually, there is injustice in this system. There is injustice in this world. How is everyone just going about it without without looking around and saying this is a bit broken? Absolutely. And, and what's so sad here is that the Orthodox, whether it's, you know, religiously orthodox or the, you know, in economics, uh, the, you know, the orthodox capitalists or whatever it is, they just, uh, they just attack the people who ask these questions. They see them as a threat. Um, they try to drive them away and discredit them. Uh, and, uh, uh, and when that happens, it, in a sense, if they succeed in driving them away, it means that their group is going to stagnate. Uh, and because it's only those people who ask those deep questions who make change possible. In fact, uh, as, as Sue was saying, those are the people we call saints after they're martyred <laughs> because they had the courage to, to turn things, uh, to turn things around. Um, but of course, if the, if the gatekeepers succeed in driving them away, then we don't call them saints. We call them heretics. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, when, when I think about stage three itself, you mentioned a lot of people can get stuck at stage two, uh, you know, can get stuck in stage one or stage two, but there's also a lot of people who, who reach stage three, the deconstruction stage, the, 
you know, the stage where they do want to speak out for truth and whatever. And, and I think probably in most people's minds in our world, um, this is the, the end point you have now yes. deconstructed. You've now seen yeah. things as they truthfully are. And that is yeah. where I, I think it's probably fair to say, certainly I think I've noticed this in my life. It, it is so easy that, that for that to be where you get stuck for that to be the end of the game. And, um, you know, I've had, I've been very fortunate to have a few people who will constantly bring me up and say, you're sounding, everything you're saying sounds very against here. It's just very against yeah. something energy. And, yeah. and I think, um, you know, it's only through that and through modeling of people who maybe have found a, a new path beyond that, that I could even begin to dream that there is a, a stage four. But yes. why do you think it is when people move into this stage three of, of critique and deconstruction, why is it that, that they can't often go any further than that? Well, um, again, I think it's, it's the scarcity of examples who model something beyond it. Uh, and I'll tell you these days, in, in the last uh, oh, several decades, if I can't tell you how many stories I've, I've experienced of this, where I was talking to evangelical or Pentecostal or charismatic pastors who would confide a secret to me and they would tell me, I've been sneaking out, uh, nobody knows about this, for a secret liaison with a Catholic nun at a Catholic retreat center who's become my spiritual director. And, and so they, they found a, a, a retreat center where someone was trained in this old art, uh, the Celts called it Anamkara, the soul friend or spiritual direction, where the, there are people who are trained in a way of helping you examine your spiritual life. And they're not there to wag a finger at you and to condemn you. They're there to say, how is God present with you in this time of questioning? How, where do you, how can you experience God in your doubts? What is your doubt telling you about life? And, and suddenly it, it's, it, all it takes is one person who validates you in that way. And you feel you have an entree into what I call stage four or harmony. And, um, and again, this is where I'm very hopeful because I, I think there are more people in stage three than uh, there've ever been in my lifetime. Mm. And I think more people are getting there at younger ages. And I think we could be on the verge of seeing more and more people begin to model this kind of stage four um, space. A huge part of it has come in recent decades from a rediscovery of the mystics um, and from a rediscovery of kinds of spiritual leaders who were never, it's just amazing, they just never seemed that important in sort of traditional Christian settings. In traditional Christian settings, I, I'm going to be very uncharitable here, but like the doctrine police got all the kudos, you know, they, they got all the attention, they became the heroes not the social activists and not the mystics and not the contemplatives. And so what's happened in these last few decades is new heroes have arisen um, to, to the, uh, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to be noticed. Mm. And I think that that helps us to say he was different. He had a different way of living his faith. Yeah, I, I think, for example, in the Anglican world of someone like Desmond Tutu, who, whose mission in life was not to police everyone's beliefs. Um, and and he, had, he was this man of, and is this man of just 
effusive joy and laughter. And you just think whatever he has is different. He's not this dour kind of person. And when you meet people like that and you're in stage three, you think, oh, there is something else. Yeah. 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 That's You need that model. You need that, that something yeah. almost... Because I, th- I think by stage three, you, you're well aware of doubt and you're quite used to doubt. But as you say in the book, it's at that stage that you need to start getting cynical about your cynicism. Yes. And, and that's quite a, a brilliant um, phrase, I think, being, being cynical about your cynicism, which invites so many, you to the next stage. So many people, that's what they've told me uh, since the book came out. They, they just said, I got sick of myself. I could tear down everybody and everything. Yeah. And I thought, what what's left? Uh, sometimes parents feel this, I've torn down everything and I have to teach my children something. Um, what I have is nothing for them. I need something more, you know, um, or sometimes it's very personal. I've got to build a life here. I've got to make a life here. I have to, uh, right now, I feel like I see through every value. It becomes transparent mm. and they think I need a value to actually live by. I, I heard someone say it like this. Um, when you when you and, and sometimes it's actual experiences where you have an experience where instead of things being transparent they become radiant mm. uh, in fact I, I, if i could give one example i was on a podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago and the podcaster told me uh he said i know the moment i went into stage three um uh, he said it's when our first child was born and she was premature and I went into the, you know, the uh, intensive care unit for newborns and she was in a uh, incubator. I don't know the name for it, but, you know, a special machine. And he could just put his hand in and his little tiny baby was holding his finger. And he said at that moment, the love that he felt for his child was so great that he thought any God who would ever want to torture someone in hell, I can no longer believe in. He felt a love that was so great, you know, that it was just too big for the theology that he'd inherited. Mm. And, uh, and uh, you might call those moments of radiance that happen to people in stage three. And they say, this doesn't fit any of my thinking, but I, th- but I have to acknowledge this, you know, and that maybe becomes a portal into something greater. I, I really like too the um, and think about being cynical about your cynicism. I, I've that that's that conversion moment. You know these conversion moments that keep happening all through our lives when we're <laughs> yes. utterly sick of ourselves. And I can point to several of those in my life. And we go right. That's it. I'm just over it. I'm sick of me. Sick of seeing <laughs> these games that are going on. So, but I think one of the ones that you point to that I loved in the, is that that the loss of supremacy that experienced the the that need. Um, and I when you were talking about stage two early with the, um, the the different steps that come through the sermons, a lot of that's about how to win at the church game we're all constantly competing how do we win at this thing and and to to get to the point where you actually realize there is no competition there's actually a place you can get to where there's only friendship and joy you know and that that loss of supremacy you talk about it as one of the greatest gains and i i really when i read that i went oh that is such a perfect way to say it Mm -hmm. um because that that's crossing over into the liberating shore that one yes 
Yes. Yeah. And and uh, just as we move into stage four, I, I also just want to briefly mention, you actually go through the five ways that stage three communities tend to self-destruct. And this was, um, this yes. was amazing to read because I think this is something that I have um, experienced myself. I think many people probably have experienced. You move to stage three, you want to be part of something again, some part of a I think you already have that hunger, that thirst for harmony for stage four. You just don't quite know how yes. to get there. So you form these communities, yes. but they fall over um, through, you say, firstly, structure, because people see at stage three the damage done by unchallenged structures and institutions. So they distrust and challenge even their own institutions constantly. Authority, in contrast to stage one, people who are dependent on authority. As you mentioned, we're counter-dependent in stage three. So we were suspicious of any kind of authority. Um, the, the third part is purpose stage three. People often feel allergic to the level of confidence implicit in any call to action. The fourth one of these is belonging stage three folks feel more comfortable lurking on the fringes of a group rather than belonging squarely in the center. Cause they're suspicious of that, which then leads to the fifth one suspicion, um, that there's just this general, uh, almost constant suspicion of all things at stage three. And when those five things are, are taking place, it's really hard to form a community. It's really hard yeah. to say, we stand for this. It's really hard to say, this is how we want to structure ourselves. All of these things get so hard at stage three. And, um, yeah. you know, the stories I've heard from friends who, uh, you know, are onto some sort of maybe a fourth home church set up and they're trying, they, they know, they know there's a way this all fits and they know there's got to be a way to bring it together. But it's just so hard to find that way when you're when you're firmly rooted in stage three, isn't it? Yes, it, it, you, that was a, a, a helpful summary because I wasn't going to remember what those <laughs> elements were. So I'm glad you summarized them. Um, and, and you know, as you were going through that summary, what what hit me is, in a sense, stage four is about this word that we all know and sing about, but maybe we don't really know, and that's grace. Because when you think about it in stage one we have grace for the people with the right beliefs and damnation for the people without the right beliefs, uh, according to our stage one standard. And in stage two, we have grace for the successful and not so much grace for the ones who don't succeed. And in stage three, we have grace for the critical and grace for the suspicious. Um, uh, but the people who fail our test, uh, we can be pretty graceless. And when you realize and you become cynical of your own cynicism and you realize I'm a mess too. I, I can see through all of these other things, but now I can see through myself. I'm a mess too. I need grace for myself. Maybe I need to give grace to you. And suddenly all these things that were there in the scripture all, all along, you realize it's talking to us about this stage four, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Oh, it's grace for everybody, you know? And that yeah, seems yeah. to be, a, a big part of that portal into that, that new territory. Yeah. It's a great point actually, because I, I do remember reading the book and thinking how much of the, the words we read in the Bible were written by people who might've been in stage three or stage four, but have always been read yeah. by people in stage one or <laughs> stage two. And oh my goodness. You can't, you, it's like a different language. You can't quite get at yes. it when you're coming at it from that perspective. And so no wonder no, so much damage has been done with words that were written from a different state of consciousness. Yes. My friend, uh, my dear friend, Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest, he gave me a, a, a statement in Latin from the Middle Ages. Let's see if I can remember it. Quid, quid, recipitur, recipientis, recipitur. I think that's it. 
whatever is received is received according to the capacity of the receiver. Uh, quid, quid, recipitor, ad modem, recipientes, recipitor, I think it is. Um, and, and so we, uh, if, we're at a st- if it we're stage one, we can only receive things based on where we are. And so we read the Bible and all we can think about is who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And you can't blame anyone for that. Um, That's all that that's all that's possible for them. Uh, But then that means we have to try to model for them and, and, you know, bring people along and anyone who's grappled with the Bible in depth realizes that the farther you go, the more interesting it gets, not less. Uh, So. And you say that stage four, the transition into this, um, speaking of things getting more and more complex and, and more interesting, um, it, it's more through mystical experiences, through poetry, nature, love, relationship. Um, these are the sort of things that can move people into stage four, which you sum up. And I like this as um, as encounter without control, that there is a, in the first three stages, you're trying to control the thing in one way or another. And in stage four, that grace you're talking about, there is a sense of holding loosely open hands, sort of just not trying to control the whole thing around you. Um, you tell a beautiful story. I don't know if you're, you're happy to share this, but of when you were a teenager and had a glimpse of this stage four experience, could you, I, I know you mentioned in the book, you don't like speaking about it too often. You don't want to cheapen it, but yeah. I'd love to hear that story. If that's something you're happy to sure. share. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, very briefly, I, I was uh, on a youth retreat with some friends and at this uh, Baptist church. And, uh, you know, I, we were breaking the stage one rules, but we snuck out after lights out and met on this hillside. And we were just we weren't doing anything terrible. We were just enjoying our, each other's company. And I moved a little bit away and just laid back on the on the hill looking up at the stars and it was a beautiful clear night and i just was overcome with a sense of the belovedness of everything i felt how beloved the stars were how precious and wonderful and beautiful and loved the stars were in space and the earth and the grass and even me and just this feeling of belovedness and um i sort of separated myself but I, i was just overcome with emotion and it was almost scary. I think I, as a, you know, whatever I was, 15 years old or so, I I never felt anything that big before. I felt like the emotion was too big for my body. Um, And then I went back to my friends whose conversation had taken them to a place where they were saying how much they loved each other. And I just thought, oh, there it is. It's everywhere. And this sense that love was the realest and biggest, Mm. uh, you know, it was what the universe was made of. And, and, I would say that sense lasted intensely for about 20 minutes and maybe for a few hours. And then I went back to my regular life, but the experience was so powerful. Um, I would call it a state. It was a temporary state that I experienced. Um, maybe that's what people mean when they talk about having a vision or something like that. It's, it's a temporary state, but the fact that you experience it tells you if I learn how, if I develop the necessary skills, maybe I could live in something like that more consistently. And that's mm. how I think a state is like going somewhere on vacation and the, or on holiday. And then you look, you actually find out you can learn to move there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's really beautiful. And I think, you know, that will resonate with a lot of people. Um, that story. I remember when I was, uh, 
not too not too long ago, really. And I read Thomas Merton's account of um, being at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, um, and that realization that everyone around him uh, was shining like the sun. And I remember reading that, and it's similar to your story there, having this moment of thinking, now when when we're when I'm there, that's when I'm seeing truthfully. That's when I'm seeing the world as it actually is, and the whole rest of it is is not necessarily bad or needing judgment, but just it's not, it's some, something's obscured there. Yes. Yeah. And so that fourth stage of harmony, I guess it is, um, it is what so many people who are probably in stages one, two and three and, and that stage feels like it's constricting them a little bit, are hoping to find. How do you, if, I don't know if you've ever been asked this question, if anyone's ever come up and said, so Brian, I want to get to harmony. What do I do? Because <laughs> it's, there isn't stage two would want a model to get there. Um, stage three would doubt it exists, you know? So if people ask you that, what do you say? Um, well, I, I, just to be playful here, if a stage one person says it, it's because they're thinking that's the right place to be. So I want to be right. And the stage two person thinking, where are the steps? And (laughs) yeah. Uh, but, um, I, I think the thing I would say is do your work where you are, but just remember where you are. Uh, isn't isn't everything um you you can't rush there's work to do at stage one but if you're in stage one see this is where our faith communities could play such a role uh such a positive role if you're in stage one and your community is saying this is as good as it gets um it you you don't hope for anything more but if you're doing the work of stage one and your faith community is saying you have important work to do to learn to tell right from wrong, to re- learn to care about right, right versus wrong, truth versus lies, that's very, very important. And wait till you find out what's waiting for you after you learn that, you know. Uh, if I could make an analogy in, in karate, you, you know, you go in, I forget what the color of the first belt is, but you know there's something called a black belt way out there. And, and and it's wonderful from the very beginning, you aspire that someday you'll get to wear the black belt, but you know the way to get there is to learn to deal with your orange belt or whatever it is and learn the skills that are needed for you there. So that's what I'd I'd wanna say. Can I just ask Brian too, and this is a pressing question for many of us in faith communities, and I'd like um, your take on it because many people who've come out of churches are so suspicious of authority and they're so suspicious of, 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 of organized religion as well. And yet they long for that community again. They, yeah. they haven't given up their faith, um, but they are hesitant to take up leadership roles because they don't want to be part of the problem again. Yeah. So that's part of it. So they're hanging back and they're also unsure of whether any organized religion could create a space for that kind of harmony. So I'm just would love to hear what you might say to them. Yeah, you know, Sue, the first thing that comes to mind is one way that could happen is people like you three, and I wouldn't be surprised if you're doing this in various ways already, um, but people like you three could set up a side hustle. <laughs> I mean, or you, in other words, you could go to your bishop or whoever and say, look, could, or, or the, the, whatever the council is at your church and say, listen, I'd like to take six hours a week um, where I do something for people in the community who do not attend uh, our services and probably never will. But instead of trying to get them to come to us, I'd like to bring whatever I can bring to them. Um, and if, if people, it, um, 
Well, let, let me just tell you a quick story about this. I was, this is before COVID, I was on a train going from Washington DC to New York City. And I sitting next to a woman, I would say she was 18 or 19 years old. And we started chatting. And when she found out that I was a pastor, it was like she felt she'd won the lottery. She just was so happy because she was totally non-religious. And she, she had never even had access to a person with theological training because she didn't go to church. She never met one. And when I seemed like a nice person, she just started pouring out her heart. She was asking basically for spiritual direction on the train. <laughs> and you realize that if, if you know, people like you three, if people could find out that you're available, that you have hours for them, that you're someone they could talk to who, who is different than the stage one and stage two that they're expecting. I think we would be surprised. It, it, for all those stage three people, they wouldn't believe it for a long time. But when another friend came and told them, hey, I met somebody, you really can talk to her. <laughs> you know, it would, um, it would be such a, a relief for people. I think that's one way that we could do it. We'd, we'd have to say, this is, uh, we, in a sense, we'd have to change our job description to say, I'm not here to serve this church. I'm here to be an agent of spiritual healing and transformation. And, uh, and I have multiple venues. Yeah. I love that. Um, and I also want to touch on now that we've looked at the four stage model, um, of simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony towards the end of the book, you make a really, really helpful distinction, a really helpful comment, which I sort of foreshadowed at the start of the conversation, which is that this isn't a religious problem. It's not as though these, these problems are rooted in religion and cultures going okay out there, but actually you could say, and you, you do make this point um, very convincingly that the problems that we are seeing globally at the moment are not religious problems, but human problems. And the problem is that so many people are in stage one or two um, of development and stuck there. And that the only way that this world is going to really be able to heal our political, environmental, societal problems will be if some doubt gets in. If some ants get in the pants and kick the whole thing forward. And I, I guess you did mention there's maybe more people in stage three than, than ever before. So there is hope there. But um, it, it, do, do you see that that is starting to happen? That How, how do you... How do you give people doubt? Because really that's um, give people's not great language. How do you help people have doubt? Because ultimately, if that is the call, don't not, not help people find faith, but help people find doubt. How do you do that? Well, let me say a couple of things about that. Uh, it's such a, a rich question. The first thing I would say is that reality is going to help us in this. Capitalism in its current form cannot address climate change. And so people are going to say, oh my, you know, uh, our, our way of doing things isn't, we've got to doubt our, our, all of our assumptions about the way that the world works. Um, government as it's currently set up, it, it's going to have to have deep changes if it's going to be able to actually get something done about climate change. Um, so people are going to have doubts. Religion's going to have to change. But here's the flip side of that when the realities of climate change hit, and the same goes for economic inequality. You know, I, I think when people come to understand how much wealth in the world is owned by a tiny, tiny percentage of, of 
people. I, I've read different numbers, but somewhere between eight and about 30 families own as much wealth as half of the people in the world. Now you think that's just not just money because of that money, that means they have more power. And when people realize that is how things are, then you know suddenly they say, this just is crazy. Anxiety levels start to go up. And here's one of the problems. When anxiety levels go up, uh, a lot of people, if they're in stage two or stage three, they rush back to stage one mm -hmm. and they look for an authoritarian leader to, um, to save them. And, uh, and so I see two things happening at the same time, opposite things. Um, it's, I see more people moving into stage three, but as they move into stage three, it scares the stage one people and they double down all the more. And I'm sure you all watched it happen here in my country on January 6th. Mm -hmm. This was a resurgence of stage one people who want a strong man, authority figure to hate, to divide the world into us and them and know, know who to hate and all the rest. And that has huge appeal. And so this to me is the drama of the next couple of decades. Um, it's going to be helping enough stage three people move into stage four so that they won't just freak out the stage one people, but that will love them into, into growth. Um, yeah. I, I, hope that, I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. No, that's, that's really beautiful because I think there's, there's this sense that, um, you know, knowing the people I know who I would say probably are, spend a lot of their time in stage one and stage two. And it is an important distinction you make a number of times in the book that this isn't a, a linear process that you totally graduate from one to the next, but we all, you know, the Ken Wilber idea of transcend and include, we all hold all of these. And depending on the minute of the day, you never know which one you might be holding. But um, there is this sense from people who have been faithful to their stage one or stage two communities that they just feel they've been hated on and uh, that stage three people have just been aggressive and shut them down and tried to change them and tell them they're deeply corrupt. And you're right. That's all that does is create a stronger energy the other way. So, so is stage four, the harmony with more people in harmony who can hold the stage three and more love. You think that's the hope that's the path forward. Well, yes, but I, I even want to even complexify that a little bit to say that even that tension that exists between the stage three and the stage two and the stage one people, that tension makes all of them unhappy. It either makes people double down or it makes them be open to change. And so I don't think the solution is to remove all the tension. I think, I think the tension is actually part of what's going to bring about the change. But it's dangerous. It's very dangerous, and uh, and a lot a lot can go wrong. But that to me becomes adds a lot of meaning to our our Christian calling. And when I imagine that Jesus lived in a super dangerous time, where a significant percentage of his population were planning a violent revolution and insurrection, and another group were siding with the powers that be, and Jesus is walking in a situation full of parties. And in fact, when you realize when you read the Gospels and you have the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Zealots and the Herodians and all of these different groups, they represent exactly the kind of parties that we see uh, at, at play and at war in our world today. And he walks in the middle of that. And it, it seems to me that becomes a path that is open for us to follow, to walk in the middle of that and you know, Jesus doesn't just go around 
holding a peace sign. He, he speaks some stage one language to stage one people. He knows what they need to get their attention. And, uh, uh, and yet he always models something that leads people farther. And look, the, the book is Faith After Doubt. Um, uh, I could not encourage people more to, to read through this. And also alongside it, um, it feels like a companion almost, the podcast Learning How to See that you, are, that you have created as well, um, which sort of uh, helps us to start uh, looking at the world this way and understanding the lenses and the biases with which we're using. Brian, it's been a real treat to spend the time with you. I've got to say, I think you, the work you're doing is um, is so richly needed and, and we're all so grateful for it. Well, such a pleasure to be with you. And can I just say, if any, if any one thing is helping more people move into stage three and stage four, I think it's podcasts like yours. So keep up the great work. Oh, thank you so much, Brian. We'll uh, get you back on to talk about Do I Stay Christian next year then? I look forward to it. Let's do it. <laughs>